Hey guys, and welcome back to the Rat Chat. This episode is quite special because we were invited to FBRI, or the Freeland Biomedical Research Institute, to talk about Brain Week with neuroscientist Dr. Anthony Lamantia. Here in a moment, this episode is going to jump in mid-conversation because it started and the record button wasn't pressed. To give some context, we were talking about why Brain Week is important, how there are institutions like the American Heart Association or American Lung Association, but no equivalent for brains. Brain Week is used to bring together people and researchers to try and further our knowledge on the brain, which isn't quite as well understood as the other organs. Part of this is because neurological research is divided among different fields like biology and psychology, which are quite separated. Now that you've gotten the background, here's the rest of the conversation with Dr. Lamantia. You can start with that metaphor. Everybody knows what a pump is, right? Well, what's the metaphor for a brain? People sometimes say a computer, but that's probably not a particularly useful metaphor at the end of the day, um, because our brains really aren't digital, they're analog. Um, so this is a real challenge, and so I think Brain Awareness Week is probably the only program that actually exists where there's you know a national effort at particularly at universities, at medical schools, um, to engage the public and to let them in on you know, what's happening in brain research, what about the brain and your health. I think particularly in the last several years when we've become more aware of how acute stressors can really compromise brain health. The other interesting thing is is that for brain health, we still try to divide it into this, what I think is a useless dichotomy of mental health versus something else. Well, where else is it coming from? I mean, you know, the product of your brain, which is your behavior, comes from your brain, which is an organ. And disembodying it doesn't help. And I think that's one of the good things about Brain Awareness Week is that there's a unitary focus. Yeah, that's not that's the brain, yeah. <laughs> which is an organ. And so I think there should probably be a more concerted effort to do what the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association, the American Cancer Association, which is more focused on a disease than it is a particular organ, have done, which is to really promote awareness in a variety of ways. First and foremost, the organ or the disease as something that's a risk to health and that one has to be aware of, one can pursue preventive approaches to maintain one's health. Um, And then also as a focus of research to make things better. And I don't think we, we don't have that kind of unitary effort for neuroscience. Um, neuroscience is diverse in a lot of ways that I think those other... Neuroscience has multiple clinical disciplines that actually address brain illnesses. Okay. Neuroscience has a number of ways of approaching the problem as a research problem. And all of these things, I think, make the challenge of brain awareness much more difficult. Yeah, um, do you think that a lot of the mystique around um, brain science and neuroscience in general comes because the field is so new and we, we keep making advancements in the last like 25, 30 years that like completely like revolutionize what we think of it? I think that's part of it. I mean, I think in 1991 when I was starting my career, neuroscience really hadn't been unified as a singular field and in fact, I was one of the co-authors and editors of the first textbook to be called Neuroscience, and we just finished the seventh edition. And as we were putting that together, we actually faced some of the challenges that you're talking about, which was that the field was rapidly changing. Um, All of the new approaches that had been introduced generally into biological sciences and biomedical sciences 
molecular biological approaches, genomic approaches, imaging approaches in humans, um, computational approaches, data, man you know, big data, those sorts of things. It wasn't called that at the time, but those things were emerging, and of course everything was being thrown at the nervous system to try to understand it. And so I think putting that together, I and mean, when we faced putting the book together, we recognized we had to do as much as possible to bring everything into one package and to tell a unified story about how you approach all facets, facets of the brain. And as we've over now 30 years, you know, constantly updated the book. One of the challenges has been keeping up with the rapid change because every time there's a new development in any other field where there's more sort of a focus of, well, you know, how do we take this apart in the heart or in the brain or in the gut or wherever. Somehow or other, what emerges is there's a dimension of this that probably addresses the brain either technically or actually physiologically. I mean, for example, the microbiome in the gut was discovered, and gee, that was really cool that there was, you know, there were more microorganisms in your gut than there are actually your own cells that make you up, and that these microorganisms just weren't an inconvenience, they were actually an essential symbiotic part of how the gastrointestinal system works, and also for the immune system to actually establish one interface with the environment. But then everybody recognized that, well, the microbiome was also actually regulating how the brain was interacting not only with the gut but with every other organ system in the periphery, and also how the microbiome could actually influence a number of more complex behaviors. So all of a sudden the microbiome was a neurobiological problem. And that may actually reflect the physiological reality that whatever any other organ does, it has to talk to the brain about it. And that, again, is the complexity of thinking about this. Um, I can honestly say that when I was starting out in neuroscience, and I was, I was the first graduate student in a new neuroscience graduate program at Yale. I was the only student for you know, the first year I was there. And at the time, there was an evolution saying that, well, if you were going to understand the brain, you had to actually do it in an integrated way. Before then, there had been biochemists who studied brain tissue. There had been physiologists who you know, did physiology on nerve cells. There had been anatomists who happened to study the brain. But the idea that you had to integrate all of these things, and I think that's the other challenge of telling the story, is that once you get beyond the ranks of neuroscientists, some of whom even struggle with, you know, integrating molecular approaches with behavioral approaches or vice versa, that it becomes really difficult to follow the story because you need a lot of background. And hopefully, you know, when we do things like Brain Awareness Week and we plan programs, we provide enough of a entry point to make it accessible. But I do think that the, you know, hiding behind complexity to as an excuse for not explaining yourself is never a good idea. And I think, you know, neuroscientists may be more guilty of that than other disciplines. <laughs> um, it's not that hard. I mean, you know, it's... And I do think we need to do a better job. I think if you were to ask someone if they even had an awareness of neuroscience, that awareness would be, you know, fairly constricted around something that they had heard about, either, you know, reading, it depends on which newspaper you read, but in many of the sort of national newspapers, you will often see neuroscience depicted as human neuroscience, fMRI studies of this part of the brain is active when you're doing, you know, something behaviorally interesting. That's one aspect of neuroscience that's important, but there are a lot of other aspects of neuroscience that are not, perhaps, people are not as aware of. And again, I think it has to do with intuition. I mean, I think our intuition about our own brains is probably less developed than it should be. Yeah. You know, you go out and exercise, you think, oh, you know, I'm going to build my leg muscles or my, I'm going to, you know, build endurance, which is cardiovascular and, 
respiratory. But you don't recognize that right now you're doing a brain exercise. (laughs) Hopefully you're listening to me. Hopefully I'm saying something coherent and hopefully that's changing your brain. Well, I mean, I wanted to say that I think I'm certainly guilty of the whole, like, oh, brain science and brain anatomy is too complex for me to understand. But it's interesting how you're saying how there's all these different facets that you can approach it from. Because in high school, you can take an AP psychology course or a psychology course. And certainly one of the units is, like, anatomy. So looking at the different parts of the brain and looking at its, like, physiochemical properties. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it's also seeing how um, these, like, connections in your brain translate to different behaviors in the body. So I was wondering, like, when you guys are setting up this brain awareness or when you're trying to attempt outreach, like, what is the most, like, common, like, perspective that you try to approach it from when you're trying to teach, like, the general audience about it? Um, I think that's a really good question, and I don't have a singular answer for you. I mean, I think the approach this year is to use a metaphor, electricity. I mean, all of your organs in some way use electrical based properties, channels that conduct ions that maintain voltages across membranes as part of what they're doing to do their jobs. But the brain has really upped the game in using electricity. And you know, from there comes another metaphor, which is that often the cells in the brain, the ensembles that they form that as you said in your psychology course, you learn that there are these connections or pathways that do behaviors. They're often referred to as circuits, which is an engineering metaphor that says, you know, you can take something, in this case, that's processing electricity and put it into a model that, you know, you can understand how you input something and get an output. Um, And so I think those metaphors, I think, are important. And... However, they only address one part of it, right? You can look at all the other perspectives. And they go with all the other perspectives. I mean, I'm primarily a geneticist, and I use genetic approaches and molecular biological approaches to try to understand, well, you know, you have this genome, and the only way you can get this is by using the instructions that are available in 23 chromosomes in a human or the equivalent number in other animals to build the organ. And so that's a completely different perspective. And if I was to start out, I would say, you know, you have 23 chromosomes and about 20,000 expressed genes from your genome. How much do you think is thrown at the problem of building the brain? It's one organ of many, right? It's about 85% of the genome is thrown at the problem of building the brain. So there you have another starting point, you know, when you get your information from 23andMe, most of it is actually involved in putting your brain together and keeping it running. And so a little bit less of perhaps an immediately accessible metaphor, but nevertheless something that you could use as a starting point. So I think... I think the challenge that we faced every year, I haven't, I've only been at FBRI for three years, but I've been involved in other similar programs, is which metaphor do you use? Yeah. Um, so which metaphor would be more useful for you guys? I mean... I guess I have a question that goes in probably a different direction. So you've, you've spoken a lot about how depending on what side of neuroscience you want to explain to the general public, you use a different type of metaphor. Does this kind of uh, ambiguity or difficulty in explaining neuroscience as a whole, does that translate towards the research side? Like, is there a lot of, like, uh, is there a lot of research from different perspectives within neuroscience as to, like, the different compositions or, like, the different um, unified theories of how the brain works? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about neuroscience is, is that it, there is a word that we've used to try to unify the whole group, but the unity within the group is still questionable. I mean, if, <laughs> if you take it from the perspective of a variety of brain diseases, for example, the work that I do in my lab addresses neurodevelopmental disorders that are clinically defined like autism or ADHD or even schizophrenia. Um, But if you go to a meeting 
that's focused on autism research, you'll find people who are just doing psychological surveys and putting the data together to describe specific behavioral changes, which is very important, but they are completely distinct from the group of people who are collecting families, doing whole genome sequencing, and trying to identify genetic signatures that are heritable that predict autism risk, which is different than the group that is actually looking at synaptic plasticity and how it's disrupted in autism, which is different from the group that is looking at specific risk genes and asking, well, how does that impact the steps necessary cell biologically to build a brain? And so even within this one disease entity, you have all of this diversity. And I think if you were to take neuroscience on from that perspective, aging and cognitive decline, again, there are people who study it using imaging and say, okay, well, this part of the brain clearly is not processing information as effectively. It's thickness in terms of its size that we can image structurally in an MRI is leading the way in terms of the degeneration. But then there are other people who are really all over the molecular structure of the plaques and the tangles and, that, and various mutations within the genes that encode those proteins that actually more or less predict disease progression. And then there are people who are interested in the pharmacology of finding ways of clearing the plaques and tangles. All of those people are studying the same problem, but it sometimes can be like the blind men and the elephant. I don't know if you know that. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so he does. For the yeah. audience, there are three blind men, and they come across an elephant, and each man is touching oh, okay. a different yeah, yeah. part of the elephant and trying to explain to the other three blind men what the elephant is or what it feels like. And the, the problem is that they're each touching a different part of the elephant, so they're each having their own unique experience that doesn't translate over to the other person. Okay. So often, philosophic war is the disputants I ween, prate on in other, utter ignorance of what each other mean, and argue o'er an elephant not one of them has seen. <laughs> Yeah. And in a sense, I mean, I think we're all, you know, I think neuroscientists have an equal sort of blindness in that we sometimes have a difficulty stepping back and looking at the elephant rather than the part that we've seized upon. And again, it's easy to hide behind the excuse, well, the elephant is really big, so how can, <laughs> <laughs> so how can you possibly, you know, comprehend it all? But I think the point is, is that you can step back mm -hmm. and have an appropriate perspective where you can begin to get a sense of, well, how would you integrate this? Operationally, I think to study big neurobiological problems or neuroscientific problems, you need multiple investigators because just the operational challenges of bringing to bear the variety of approaches that you need to understand the nervous system is is significant and you know unfortunately that's what places like the Fralin is capable of doing is that there are people here who have a variety of approaches to understanding the neuroscience the the brain rather we're all considered neuroscientists we're all in the same building and with any luck we talk to each other and then we begin <laughs> to formulate ways that, well, you know, I can figure this out, you can figure that out. If we know both of these things, then we can actually generate more value for the scientific inquiry that we're, we're interested in. Um, and, you know, that's the way that science works. I mean, often science moves forward because there's an unexpected synthesis of one approach or one set of observations and another that come together and like. I mean, a great example is <clears throat> in cancer biology. People always knew that there was an accelerator in cancer, which was cells dividing, 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 dividing. But they, what they didn't realize was that whenever there's an accelerator, there usually implies that there are brakes. Well, what were the brakes? Well, the way that the brakes were actually figured out was not by studying tumors, but by actually studying 
the worm C. elegans because looking at C. elegans and figuring out how you put together this 900 cell worm, it was recognized that there were genetic programs that actually specifically killed off cells. And all of a sudden it was clear that the genome had a mechanism that had to be translated into single genes and proteins that actually put on the brakes on particular pathways of division of cells and said, okay, this cell we don't need any more of you or your progeny, so we're going to kill you. Mm -hmm. And then you look in tumors and it's see, and what turns out? The genes that control that same process in tumors are mutated so that the brakes can't be put on. So it's this kind of unexpected, I mean, that was, you know, developmental biology in a little 900-cell worm, and Bob Horvitz won the Nobel Prize for that observation because unexpectedly it actually translated into understanding a big part of disease biology, cancer biology. And I think sometimes that's what, you know, you hope you look for is these unexpected moments of synthesis. I mean, it wasn't a singular aha. It took a long time to recognize that, you know, what was going on in the worm was actually related to what was going on in, in tumors. But nevertheless, you get there by imagining that you know, things that seem to be very different can actually inform one another. And I think for brain science and for addressing brain diseases, I think we have to do more of that. And I think something like Brain Awareness Week is more aimed at getting people who aren't thinking about the brain all the time as a problem of, you know, for scientific understanding. Um, but challenging us to explain ourselves actually reminds us that, you know, we have to make connections. We yeah. have to, even in explaining things, you have to make the connections. Because somebody might ask you a question, and all of a sudden, what you know isn't sufficient to explain it. <clears throat> and so, you know, I think these issues of what does complexity mean when you're, when you're looking at anything? Complexity means that there's a lot of information. It doesn't mean that that information can't be organized and simplified in a way that allows you understanding. And so I think that's a challenge for neuroscience going forward because of course we're really bad at curing things. You know, if, if your interest is not only understanding how the thing works but fixing it when it doesn't, um, Brain science hasn't made the progress that cardiovascular biology, cancer biology, gastrointestinal biology, all of these other um, bone biology. I mean, you know, what you can do if you have bone issues is, is amazing. There are, you know, all sorts of replacement parts, and they work. And and immunobiology. I mean, our ability to regulate the immune system to address infectious diseases. We just saw a great example of that. COVID oh, yeah. <laughs> was not solved by, you know, anything but the synthesis of really good immunobiology and molecular biology, right? And so, but the tools were there. I think for the brain, the tools are still not as developed. Um, and the problem is a little bit harder because, of course, you know, here's another detail that many people don't know. You have some gut problems. Your gut can regenerate in large measure because there are lots of nice stem cells that can make all of... Your brain, most of what you have, you have when you're born. Nerve cells are the most terminally differentiated and non-mitotic cells imaginable. That's why there are fewer tumors in the nervous system, because there aren't rapidly dividing cells, replacing cells that have been run down. But that also means that, you know, if you have all of these cells that were generated very early in development, they found their way to make their connections when the whole thing was smaller. If you begin to break the system now that it's bigger, that you can't replace the cells, 
fixing the organ is going to be a much greater challenge. Yes. And I think, you know, these are the things that, you know, if you're worrying about whether or not neuroscience is actually going to solve any problems, keep you up at night. Um, because they're these are very different problems than I think what a lot of other what the biology of a lot of other organ systems permits. Um, and so, you know, that, I think, again, it shouldn't be used as an excuse. You, know, you have the problem in front of you, figure it out. But I think it does make it different. I mean, I think repairing your joints, well, if one wears out, it is possible to replace the entire joint with an artificial material and the research that's not, you know, that is developing better and better materials so that the joints that are replaced last longer, that they're more, they're e more easily incorporated, the immune system doesn't mind them as much, all of these other sorts of things. We don't have that kind of thing for the brain. I mean, you know, I think people are trying in a variety of ways and there's some real cool stuff where you can actually use stimulators that are actually designed to provide patterns of stimulation that can actually give you enough electrical activity over a spinal cord injury to restore some movement. Now that's a, that's a synthesis of engineering, of data science to look at, you know, really complex patterns in terms of, you know, how neural networks work and how you might be able to accommodate them of material science to figure out what kind of an electrode can you actually put on top of the protective covering of the spinal cord that won't cause inflammation, that won't cause damage, that nevertheless can develop this. And then the challenge of, well, how do you, once the electrode is there, how do you develop a controller that is not so large that you have to have a semi? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. very similar to when people were developing pacemakers. I mean, obviously pacemakers have come a long way since they originally developed, but that was, they had all of those same <coughs> problems where, where, when to fire the electrical impulse, how to charge the electrical impulse, where to like keep it. And I was gonna ask, so you've talked a lot about how important interdisciplinary study is to neurobiology. And I was wondering, like in terms of what you see in like a research lab, how many like electrical engineers or like, like how, what is the diversity of like, degrees, I guess, that people have in a neurobiology lab? Um, I think over the, in the past, there have been laboratories that have been very focused on one approach. Mm -hmm. There have been neuroscience labs that are basically electrophysiology labs, neuroscience labs that are basically molecular biology or anatomy or behavior. More and more those approaches have been integrated, although often individual laboratories still have a focus of approach and then there's collaboration between laboratories. I think what you're saying is, is that there needs to be more diversity of the people who are working shoulder to shoulder day to day, and I agree with that. I think engineering and <coughs> data science are more and more being incorporated in neuroscience, um, both, you know, just basic neuroscience research to understand how the thing works and also clinical research to really try to begin to develop new interventions that can actually deliver some therapeutic impact. Um, I think going forward, one of the things that I think has not been fully recognized by neuroscientists is that neuroscience is probably the place where really rigorous mathematics, mathematical modeling, um, the kind that informs modern engineering, modern computational science, etc., can really have a huge role, not only to explain things, but also to generate hypotheses. Because sometimes those sorts of models allow you to, you know, rigorously define, well, what are the variables we should be looking for? Um, in the way that, you know, this was what allowed theoretical physics to actually be translated into yeah. experimental physics. And so I think going forward, those sorts of disciplines being incorporated into neuroscience research and actually actively trying to bring people with those points of view and those skill sets into neuroscience, either 
as students or once they're trained as investigators coming in. And I think that's probably happening. I mean, you know, universities are in some ways always a little bit behind the curve. Maybe surprising, but um, you know, they're the research universities based on the productivity of individuals who come in and they set up a laboratory and they're productive and they publish papers that are identified with them and the work that they do. The idea of teams, these big teams that bring multiple points of view and expertise and really generate something that's bigger than any one of the individuals involved, I think those are happening more in biotech, in other industrial settings where they're still interested in the problem of how does a brain work and how can you address that. But there's less invested in this idea of the independent investigator. And I think for you know people in your generation, the idea of an independent investigator, if you want to be an academic scientist or even a scientist in somewhere in the realm of the vast scientific industrial complex that's grown up, um, you will probably be more likely to work in a team and not mm -hmm. be able to function without really the equivalent input from people with very different kinds of expertise. So oh. to try and put this in one big uh, analogy, it's like the, when you're trying to make a car or something like that, you have the people who research the engine, you have the people who do the electronics, you have the people who do the tires and things like that. And we take kind of for granted the big picture that the car is. But eventually someone's got to go in and they've got to put the wheels on the frame, they've got to put the engine in, they've got to connect the power and stuff like that to actually make the car run, to actually make the car work and to understand the product what you're doing and that's what the car companies are doing is they're like bringing all these different people together all these different researchers together and they're making one big better project with more understanding so is that what you're kind of what you're saying I think that's absolutely right I, I love me a car analogy that's uh -huh. a great analogy and what I would add to that analogy is there are also people working at automobile companies trying to understand the behavioral psychology of the people who operate the cars. Oh, there's so many <laughs> levels. <laughs> like an onion. You know, what is, what is their visual experience? What are their reaction times? What are their approaches to physically manipulating things? And how do you design a better set of control knobs and switches, etc.? So all of those things go into making a really effective car that can be driven safely, that can last, that can be repaired when things go wrong. And look at the diversity of people who have to bring, be brought together by automobile companies to make a competitive product. So if we apply your analogy to the brain, clearly we need at least that diversity because I would like to assume that my brain is a little bit more complicated than a Buick, <laughs> but um, who well. knows. <laughs> and so I think this is actually, if there was one thing to take away from Brain Awareness Week, it is that more people need to be aware of the brain, not only just everyone who has one, but also people who are interested in understanding the problem. Um, we need to bring more perspectives in. We need to act more like car companies and take as many skill sets as possible and throw it at the problem of... Well, I think it's just so interesting because you like talked about the mathematical modeling aspect of it. And it's funny because a lot in the research community, what people are doing is they'll do the, they'll do the experiment and then they'll try to like create this model to fit exactly what their data has like spit out. And that's really not what you're supposed to be doing. What you should be doing is using like MATLAB, which is, is a matrix laboratory, um, matrix laboratory coding language that uses a bunch of grids. Um, but or they use like MATLAB or COMSOL to create these simulations in the first place, and that's what you can base your hypotheses off of. Right. And well, and I think you know one of the things is, is that you're absolutely right because an argument that has always raged in mathematical modeling of any biological process, but particularly in the brain, is are you just making an equation to say I can get what I already yeah. know I'm getting? Or are you actually thinking about the problem and using 
mathematical relationships to predict, well, there's something I should go looking for. Now, there's a big success story in neuroscience that actually used that approach. So there were equations that were generated to explain membrane voltage changes for the action potential, for the synaptic potentials, and they had a term called conductance. Nobody knew what the hell conductance was. <laughs> but it was there, it was a mathematical term, and it turns out that conductance was actually represented by the physical reality of ion channels. <laughs> their, <coughs> their actual protein structure, their charge distribution, their capacity to conduct ions across a membrane. Nobody knew that those proteins were there when that conductance term was included in the Hodgkin-Huxley equations, the Goldman equation, all of these other equations. Those were mathematical models that actually said, there's something out there that you guys need to find, so go look for it. I don't think we've had those kind of mathematical models since in neuroscience. I think a lot of them have been post hoc demonstrations of okay, when I bring these variables together and I measure them in the laboratory, I can actually describe fairly predictably their behavior using a mathematical equation, but that's not predicting anything. Yeah. So, and again, I mean, you know, I don't think most neuroscientists actually have the sophistication. I certainly don't. Um, <laughs> um, the, the scientist that works in my lab, like she's a mathematical <clears throat> oncologist, so and she does like all of the like creating like vector streamlines for like path pathways throughout the brain. So like she's definitely specialized, and everybody else kind of like leeches off of her work. But right, and I think again, I think we have to become more like the leeches. <laughs> Suck them dry. You know? <laughs> because this is the way that I think the field is going to move forward. I mean, there's been um, someone who I know fairly well and who I really admire, Tom Insel, who was the, the director of the National Institute for Mental Health for a lot of the period of my career when I was used really interested in using human genetics as a starting point to understand the cell biology and genetic ar and developmental architecture of how neural circuitry can be built incorrectly to bias brains toward vulnerability to these developmental disorders like autism and schizophrenia. And I got to know Tom really well and he was very supportive of the whole idea of using genetics and molecular biology. And he wrote many sort of position articles about, you know, cardiovascular biology and cancer biology has bent the curve of mortality and morbidity. And, you know, if we're going to do the same thing, we have to follow their, their approach. He had something of a conversion. He wrote a book that was just published last year really lamenting the fact that after all of this investment that was made during the decade of the brain, which was from 1990 to, to you know, 2000 um, and beyond, that it really hasn't yielded new therapies, new approaches that are widely used, um, and that some of the most vexing brain disorders, either the ones that affect behavior like depression and those sorts of things, or the neurodegenerative disorders like cognitive decline and the various forms of, of dementia, that really there are no new therapies for them. And the new therapies that have emerged are, are questionable in their efficacy and have been very controversial, particularly the ones, you may have heard about the ones for dementia and for various forms of Alzheimer's disease, and they've been really controversial. And Tom's point of view was that, well, maybe we just can't do this right now, and so what we need to do is we need to use the available modalities of providing supportive mental health care and brain health care to improve the lives of people who have these disorders and just admit we're not ready to cure them, we're not ready to do the sorts of things. I mean, there's been, it's been great actually, it's sort of around a sad thing, but um, as Jimmy Carter, you know, reaches the end of his life, 
there's a lot of attention on the fact that he was one of the first high-profile individuals to receive immunotherapy for cancer and really be effectively cured. Um, and this was, you know, this increased public awareness of the fact that what had used to be a real death sentence, melanoma, could actually be addressed with new therapeutic agents that actually, you know, not uniformly, and there are, you know, if you read the articles that have come out in the last couple of days about this issue, there are a lot of patients who unfortunately can't be addressed with these approaches, but it was an amazing development, and neuroscience hasn't had anything like that. There are no there are no new drugs that really address new targets that have been put on the market in decades. Um, and so, you know, there's another facet of the problem. We're working really hard and we're not doing what I think a lot of people would, to use the car analogy, we're neither building better cars nor are we able to more efficiently repair the ones that we have. Um, and so, you know, again, I think maybe the one way to address this is to say you need to bring more people with different approaches into the fold of addressing this problem. Um, you know, I've been at this for over 30 years, I mean, before your grandparents were born. <laughs> um, the good news is, is that there has been an enormous amount of granular progress where I think we define the questions much better. We have better ways of approaching them, resolving them, getting information, getting the data. But it's unfortunate. We, I don't think neuroscience has had sort of intellectual advances. There haven't been a big new idea that's come around and said, you know, trust me, if I knew what that was, <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here decrying the fact that no one has come up with it. I tell you. Um, but, and I think this reflects the difficulty because this is such a multidimensional problem. And our, you know, unfortunately, our brains that are trying to understand our brains aren't easily capable of doing what our brains are doing, which is to take all of this multidimensional information and integrated. I mean, they've been adapted to do that so that I can talk to you and I can look out the window and see that there's a fluorescent light over there and do all of the cognitive things that I need to do to guide my behavior to make sure that I don't fall over or otherwise injure myself um, or say something stupid. <laughs> well, that one doesn't always work, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, but our brain's capacity to actually do this sort of multi-dimensional data analysis is really not, we're not good at it. And so, but there are ways of taking that on now with, you know, scientific approaches that allow you to do that. And so hopefully some of the answers will come from there. Um, you know, I remember in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there had been a real flurry of discovery of the molecules that, in a developing brain, help axons that have to connect to another nerve cell find their way to the right target. And it was, you know, there was a hope that with this information you could actually use it to fix spinal cord injury and other sorts of brain damage where there's disconnection because you've actually, that you could figure out how to reactivate the nerve cell to extend its axon and then also use this sort of matrix of decision guiding molecules to guide the axon back to its target. Didn't really help at all. Yeah. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot about how the developing brain does this job really remarkably well. But unfortunately, we couldn't translate that into solving the problem that remains insoluble, which is if the brain is damaged, particularly, you know, there are lots of ways to damage brains, but traumatic damage, you know, in an accident or a fall or 
you know, some other where you just sever a pathway. Getting that to reconnect, nobody has the foggiest clue. And so, you know, I think th that's an example of where a set of discoveries seemed to be relevant and then they weren't. So, you know, where do you, how do you know what's going to actually solve the problem? And I think in some ways you can't assume a priori that, well, if we figure this out. I mean, with aging, I mean, you have no idea. I, I was on an NIH study section that was supposed to be doing transcriptional regulation in nerve cells, but we got all the grants that were at the time, this was in the mid, early to mid-2000s, that were looking at the various properties of um, the A-beta protein fragment from the APP gene. So the um, APP, now I'm forgetting what the acronym is, the stuff that makes uh, plaques in, in dementia. What? No, Amyloid precursor protein. I mean, see what happens when you get old? <laughs> Obviously, I may have a problem with amyloid precursor protein, but amyloid precursor pr protein gets cleaved, and then it has this fragment that accumulates in cells. And so there were grants that were mutating every single amino acid and trying to figure out the biochemistry of its binding properties, etc. It's still not clear that that's the right thing to do, but it was what was in front of everybody, and so, you know, everyone was all over it. There was enormous investment made, in it, and it's still not clear that that investment actually was the right thing to look at. And so this is one of the other challenges with, with neuroscience. I mean, I think cancer biology and cardiovascular biology probably faced similar challenges, but there weren't as many of them. Because again, the complexity, in that sense, the, how you can be misled by something that looks promising when you have a more complex problem, there's more ways that you can be mistaken. And so these are the sorts of things that I think you know, modern neuroscience has yet to fully grapple with. Um, we're still the blind men and the elephant. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I think Brain Awareness Week has another function, and that is, is that we have to be willing as societies to invest in things that we consider to be priorities. And I think if you look at, and, and this is actually, if you go back and look at some of the things that Tom Insel published in Science in the Journal of, Medical, uh, the, Journal of the American Medical Association, if you look at the economic burden of brain diseases compared to almost every other disease, it's massive brain diseases because they often strike early in life. They deprive people of their productivity, their economic productivity, and they also require an enormous amount of investment in care, care from families, care from the, the healthcare delivery system. And so just that argument alone should guide us to making the investment, but you have to be aware. You know, I mean, there have to be public announcements where you see, you know, the little <laughs> silhouette of the brain, like you see the silhouette yeah. of the heart. <laughs> you know, on top of the Carillion parking lot, they put a heart up every February. But yeah. do they put a brain up every March? No. It's not an anatomically Work on that correct claim. heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little... <laughs> Um, you know, why is there a brain on the top of the parking lot in March saying, you know, I mean, these are the challenges I think that partly science, scientists have, scientists are lousy communicators, um, which I may be demonstrating right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we're not really, most of us are really not interested in communicating anyway. I mean, we figure we'll talk to our fellow wizards the rest of you keep up or not. You know? <laughs> um, and we should probably be better at it. Sure I that. think, you know, I mean, I think doing things like this are important. Other questions that you have? Um, so throughout your time in the field, are there any like major breakthroughs or that you remember? Or like, how has the field changed in general since? Because yeah, you've been in it for a long time. So I'm sure you've seen uh, a lot that's, of... That's a really good question. Um, 
There are a couple of things that I can think of. The cell death thing. I mean, that was more for cancer, but that was really an essential breakthrough that happened in my my time in the field, my time as a student to a postdoc to a faculty member. Um, I remember when finally the receptor, which was a channel for capsaicin, was identified, which was an important part of transducing pain. And I remember thinking, this is great. I knew David Julius, who did it. He won the Nobel Prize last year or the year before last. I remember thinking, that's a great discovery. Um, the introduction of MRI approaches to for imaging live tissue, particularly the brain. You know, I remember when I was an undergraduate, which you guys even haven't been yet, <laughs> when I was an undergraduate, there was magnetic resonance technology, and you used it to infer the structure of organic molecules. So, you know, putting organic molecules in a magnetic field, you would get a signal, a waveform, that would allow you to deduce based on the waveform. Sometimes people just would look at them and say, okay, there must be a double bond here. And the insight that you could use these complex waveforms from using the alignment of water molecules, et cetera, and actually do the mathematics to extract images of live tissue with the detail that you can emerge during the period of my training and become and even though I don't do that kind of work that was really paradigm shifting because all of a sudden you could at least see what a human brain looked like you could see what parts weren't working when there was damage to the brain what was sort of a little disappointing in some ways was that it turns out that what was seen in live imaging basically confirmed what people had been inferring from doing post-mortem analysis of people who had strokes in this part of the brain or that part of the brain. So the amount of new insight was limited, but the ability to use the technology to see things in a different way was really remarkable. Um, so those are the things that I would you know, sort of identify. And of course, during my time of being a scientist, genomes were sequenced. And the whole idea that you could actually use that data as a starting point easily rather than having to do it yourself. I mean, when I was a graduate student, people would get, would do their PhD thesis on trying to identify and clone and sequence a single gene that encoded a single protein from a variety of organisms. And now, if you want to use that as a starting point, you know, there are hundreds of organisms now for which there are whole genome sequences or at least sufficient genome sequence information that you can start informatically and then... So that was really paradigm shifting, but that addressed more than neuroscience. But, you know, I think science has to move forward incrementally, ultimately. I mean, I think the, 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 the misimpression that there are aha moments, most aha moments reflect a lot of, hmm, hours <laughs> and days yeah. that come yeah. beforehand. And so I think the, the challenge is to keep everybody on board while we're having the mm, weeks and months and years until you get to that point where things come together, where you can take all of the pieces, some of which have been available for a long time, and then put them together and say, oh, we really do understand this now, and this is a way forward. Um, so hopefully things like Brain Awareness Week and Brain School and all of the other parallel things that are going on this month in lots of places will help keep everybody on board. 
you know, that this is, this is a long-term investment and uh, it will eventually pay off. Yeah, so like, I guess speaking in terms of keeping people on board, um, the Roanoke Valley Governor School specifically is kind of oriented towards um, students who want to pursue research um, in their undergraduate and then postgraduate stuff. Um, so like, I guess what would be your advice um, not so much like specifics, but like generally, what is your philosophy you would recommend to approach, um, I guess, research in general, or like a, a field in the sort of like scientific. Or like even uh, like neurobiology, just because yeah, it's even such a vast specific, yeah. field, like trying to figure out where to start. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is develop curiosity. So don't be constrained by the things you learn, the alchemy of the possible. Keep your mind, keep your brain, yeah. <laughs> mind, yeah. um, keep your brain open. And at this point, you really are at the beginning. I mean, when I was in high school, I, there weren't governor's schools at the time. There, you know, you took, if you were lucky, you took biology, chemistry, and physics, and you were happy about it. Um, and the access wasn't as great. But you have a way of stimulating your curiosity in that there's information out there and it's accessible through the internet. Now, you want to filter because, you know, you could be misled very easily. But let your curiosity run free for them. You will have time to focus to say, okay, this is really the important thing. But right now, learn everything. If you're interested in science, Learn about multiple facets of science. Moreover, if you're interested in being creative, learn about how brains have been creative in the past. Don't forget to read novels, to, you know, look at paintings, look at how brains have worked in the past to interpret the world, because that tells you about creativity and it stimulates your own. And I think one thing that is really bad is to think that you know, science has to be done with blinders on to the exclusion of other ways of looking at the world because those other ways of looking at the world can actually really inform science. You know, the order of mu the order that you can find in music can actually, you know, in some way inform what how you think about a scientific problem. So, what I would say to you guys is be ecumenical learners. Don't limit yourself. And as you go forward, find the thing that really stimulates your curiosity. And, you, know, I, you know, I stumbled into the thing that stimulated my curiosity, but it really took a hold of me. I mean, the idea of using genetics to understand how you put a brain together. But it happened at a time when I had already learned that there was such a thing as genetics and there was, you know, that brains were organized in particular ways so that I was ready for actually embracing the problem that I would go on to spend my entire career addressing in my own research career. Um, so, you know, I had a, a mentor when I was an undergraduate who said, scientifically, don't get married too young. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was good advice, you know. I mean, I, I kept an open mind. I kind of stumbled around and, you know, I landed on the thing that really, you know, one of the things about doing science is it's like doing art. You know, you do it because it makes you happy. There's a certain personal satisfaction. When, when we figure out a problem and we figure out how to put a story together and present it and, you know, make an argument and say, okay, this is how we think it works, there is something so deeply satisfying about that. And so find the thing as you're going through this process. It takes time. I mean, you know, I, when I was your age, I, had, I didn't know a science from a good steak sandwich. But, um, you know, eventually, if you find the thing that really stimulates your curiosity and gives you that sense of deep satisfaction, when you look at it, you just say, ooh, it works that way. We figured that out. <laughs> What could be better than that, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, be open to it.
Alrighty. Well, we want to thank you so yeah, much for being here. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your questions. And uh, yeah, and I hope to everybody listening at home that was really informative. Um, and I want to thank you again to Dr. Lamantia. Is that you said? That's me. Um, Dr. Lamantia for this amazing conversation we just had. So, yeah. Um, thank you all. And thank you for coming here to do it. I would have come to you, but... It's nice that you came here. Thank you so much. These facilities are nicer than a little closet yes. in the back of them. <laughs> <laughs> and we have Clayton here. Yes. You do yeah. have Clayton. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you to Clayton for recording. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Shut up. Anyway, thank you guys so much, and we'll catch you guys next week on the next episode of The Ratchet. <laughs>